Hi, I'm Johnny Varvel, UK's Editor-in-Chief, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Varvel Football Podcast. This podcast aims to bring you insight, debate, and entertainment from some of the best and brightest young sports journalists from around the world. Please do give us a listen. You've already started, so I'd recommend staying for a little bit longer at least. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, then please do give us a subscribe. And even better, give us a positive review. Positive reviews are a great way to expand our reach. Not only would this mean a lot to me, but it would mean a lot to over 300 writers that write regularly for Varvel UK. We hope to get as many of them on this podcast as we possibly can over the course of the 2021 to 22 season. Anyway, enough of my waffle. Let's get straight into this. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. So yes, welcome back to another episode of the Valvo Football Podcast. Now, obviously, the big game this week, Liverpool versus Man City. Well, big game in terms of title races and all of the superstars and the superstar managers. That would ordinarily be first. However, the guy, Adam Doyle, Liverpool editor, wonderful Liverpool editor for Marvel, who would usually or would be here, is stuck in traffic, which is quite a shame because, of course, you know, he was actually at the game. He witnessed the Anfield atmosphere and now he's not here. However, another big story this week was, of course, the first sacking in the Premier League of Cisco Munoz. Is that good pronunciation, Oscar? Beautifully articulated. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. Oscar being the, the wonderful Varble editor, Callum being the wonderful Callum. Not, no longer with Varble, but here in spirit with me. Just did a podcast every week. I'm not even part of Varble anymore. Yeah, you see. I, like, I bring him back in sort of spirit form. And wonderful that he is. I don't want him to leave, so I keep him there. Um, now, we'll start, actually, I suppose, as, as sort of preempted with the first managerial sacking. The reason why we're doing that, I should just harp back, with Adam being in traffic, he might still get back for the end. And if he does get back for the end, it leads to a perfectly wonderful discussion on a game in which he attended, and he's the Liverpool FC editor. If he doesn't come back at the end, again, it will be discussed without him there. But we want to give him the benefit of the doubt that he can beat this traffic and that he can beat the issue that he's in at the moment. Uh, whether he does or not, I suppose it's down to the traffic, so we don't know. Well, anyway, we'll go to what Oscar's here for, a bit of discussion on managers, a bit of discussion on how clubs are running, a bit of discussion on the impending relegation battle that's sort of forming and frothing at the mouth already. Um, start with Watford. Are they like Chelsea's... Are they like the Chelsea ownership if you got them on Wish? <laughs> um, no, different way of running the club. So at its most basic form, uh, you've got a structure within the club that aims to be self-sufficient, where it can run with uh, a head coach that it, that it doesn't rely on. So an academy, a first team, uh, a director of football that, the head of head coach can come in, pick it up and put it down, um, depending on the direction they want to go in. So they're not wholly reliant. They're not necessarily investing in a head coach. They're, they're investing in, in a style of play. Uh, and that means, yes, it, it gets to this farcical position that, that the world thinks we, um, well, why would you manage a club like Watford? I mean, we probably ask Claudio 
Ranieri that. I mean, he was appointed officially eight minutes ago uh, prior to this podcast. So uh, certainly something to discuss there. But I'm sure Jusco Munoz, it it leaves with fond memories with the promotion, but reflecting on perhaps what could have been and and perhaps what should have been uh, a happier time, at least a full season in the Premier League, but wasn't to be. Well, it's good, actually, that we get some Watford articulation on the subject because I can't keep up with the managers that do get hired. And, you know, I speak on behalf of many neutrals there as well. And then, obviously, myself and Callum can't really add too much to the fact that it seems a bit like a a crazy, you know, situation where, you know, they ask more managers than, than, well, than anyone we can think of, really. It's quite remarkable, especially when they went down the last time in the Premier League. It was... Well, it was it was every few months, and it was, and then Nigel Pearson, who was seemingly taking them to within the, a chance of survival, got axed again before the end uh, of that season. It was it was quite truly astonishing, and I mean, certainly, Callum, we talked a little bit before this off air uh, the possibility of ex Leicester manager Claudio Ranieri going is now official. He's he's gone, so you're not quite happy about that, are you? Oh, I'm devastated. King Claudio. It's, it, I'm telling you now, he's not the man you want in a relegation dogfight. And this is coming from someone who watched him do the unthinkable and win a league with us. And then the year after watches what I can only describe as being a relegation battle. And, you know, people still give us slack for sacking him then, but he would have taken us down because he's not suited to that sort of thing. With Fulham, he was sacked before... You know, he joined halfway through the season and left or got sacked or whatever. He's had, you know, he's had numerous numbers of jobs. I just feel like it's such a weird appointment. Like, he's not going to be at Watford for... I'd be shocked if he's there after February, to be honest. I said mid-February to you off there, didn't I? Uh, But, like, just touching on the whole sacking thing, I think, you know, Charlie, who was on the podcast last week, put it across really well. Um on Twitter and sort of said, maybe it's not the sackings that are the problem, but the recruitment in the first place, because if, if you were getting the right person in straight away, you know, you wouldn't have this problem. Maybe there's a bit of, you know, sometimes it's a bit of unknown entity, isn't it? And, you know, people, you know, you, you doubt people when they come in, but they do well, i.e. Ranieri at Leicester. But sure, there's a bit, of, I think it's a difference when the amount of managers you go through that, like Watford have, you know, there've clearly been managers that have been working and it's been fine, but you know, there's no consistency about it, is it? And there obviously must be some flaws as to why they have to recruit so often. Yeah, I think the worst one was when Javi Grazia got Watford into a top half finish, top half finish into an FA Cup final. I think might not quite have been top half to be fair, but they were certainly doing well in the league. I can't quite remember, but the FA Cup final as well. The sec- the season after that, he was still in the job. And then after a little bad run, he was axed. I think Kike Sanchez-Flores came back, didn't he? I was half expecting the third coming of Kike Sanchez-Flores, actually. I thought that would have been quite amusing. What a wonderful man he was. The only, you know, I was, I was actually thinking most of the Watford managers of times gone by, I actually think are quite decent and charismatic and charming individuals, with the exception of Walter Mazzari, who I thought was sort of sucked the life out of everything a bit, didn't he? You could probably add Nigel Pearson and oh Adam yeah, into the yeah. Same I wouldn't say we necessarily appoint the most charismatic of managers, but but those that agree to at least temporarily follow the party line, uh, it's it's like a fun sounds party. like government, doesn't it? 
Uh, well, yeah, you're probably not too far wrong in terms of a model. Um, you have a, a I'll help you then. In, in, yeah, <laughs> uh, Gino Pozzo uh, and Jerry Alda like it their way. It's their way or the highway. And if, like Nigel Pearson, you start spouting off and, and saying things publicly, that you are an ostrich. That didn't come out, uh, did it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, ne- he didn't necessarily say it in public. But he, he may have suggested that behind the scenes to the hierarchy. Mm. And um and yeah, that that's certainly not the way to go. I think Zisco uh well, fair play to him. He took the challenge on. Uh he took us through a really difficult period in the championship where where there was low morale. We were kind of potting around uh just outside the playoffs, well, just on the edge of the playoffs when he arrived in December at the beginning of the pandemic. And um and the one thing he was tasked with was to improve morale. I mean, he had an unbelievable squad of Ishmael Asar, Troy Deeney, uh, Etienne Kapoor at the time. Um, some real superstars. And and he got rid of a few. He made some really big decisions and he had the backing of the board. And he lifted us out of a really tough championship season. So he certainly warranted having a go this summer and again the the owners supported him financially and there was a huge overhaul um in in the double figures of, of those going in and going out and and he really took the squad by the scruff of the neck unfortunately his his strength uh his his charisma was also his weakness and he relied on it perhaps too much there was very little structure to to the way that Watford have played. And it's been reflected in the way we drew against Newcastle, the way we lost against Leeds. Um, When you come up against an organised team with a defined uh, style of play, he didn't have an answer. And actually, I think he he lost the management a a few games ago. Yes, you're at the high of, of Villa and Norwich. Uh, over the last couple of months but apart from that we've been quite frankly diabolical at times and that might sound harsh because he's a lovely bloke but ultimately he gets paid for the performances on the pitch and and they've been well below par yeah no I think that's fair I think that's fair I mean I sort of to bring that into the wider discussion yeah the game itself feels a bit well it is a secondary topic because like you said, Leeds were dominant. I don't think Wat- Watford had two shots on target, didn't they, in the whole game? Uh, and obviously almost got the equal, probably should have got the equaliser, actually, really. Melier wasn't fouled, was he? It was a, it was a similar situation, actually, to when Leeds played Burnley last year, I think. Melier did the same thing, and Ashley Barnes scored, and I was actually given the benefit of the doubt again. Went 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 to Melier, who was deemed to have been fouled then and wasn't. So that was interesting. Uh, but just to sort of widen it out, then of course there is a sort of chopping and changing that's quite frequent with the setup, as you touched on Oscar at, at Watford. But it's not the case with uh, with all the clubs at the bottom, and there are there is a relegation fight at, at, at hand as there is every season. But there's different ways of doing it, isn't there? I mean, loyalty is a big thing with certain clubs. For example, my club, Burnley. Sean Dyche has been there for a very, very long time, has signed a new contract extension. Daniel Farker at Norwich has been there for a number of years and has signed a contract. Um, and also I had Ralph Hasenhutl down as well, as someone who's been at Southampton for a while and has been, even after 9-0 defeats, 2-9-0 defeats, there's never really any danger of him being dismissed. Um, what do we think about loyalty, Callum, as a, as, a, as a football, as managers of the football club? With those three examples, you got differences, I suppose. I suppose Dyche, you could say, well, the quality of football maybe lacks at times. With Farky, you say, well, there's not enough results, positive results in the Premier League. 
perhaps. And then with Hassan Hootel, you say again, well, how demoralizing is it to lose 9 0, you know, not once, but twice and be at the end of some rather heavy defeats on occasions? Do you think all those instances really, the, the loyalty should still be there despite the, the, the shortcomings? Yeah, um, in in yes and no, in in sort of the way of like with with Southampton, yeah, they had two nine nil defeats, but look how well they picked up from those in the long run. They got beat nine nil back to back seasons, but which normally is sort of a catalyst for any team to really spiral down the table. But they ended up, albeit not finishing great, they stayed in the Premier League, and Hassan Huttle sort of turned it round. With Deitch, you admire what he's done on with limited spending, albeit now new owners means more money. It's interesting to see what, not necessarily a war chest, but maybe probably feels like that to him. But um, what he does with sort of a bigger amount of money to attract a better calibre of player, no disrespect to players on the books already at Burnley, if that goes against him and it doesn't work if he starts maybe trying to tinker with his philosophy you know sort of Maxwell Cornet is not a Sean Dyche-esque player on paper is he on paper so like you know it'd be interesting to see if he tries and moves away from that I doubt he will because he seems quite regimented in his ways so maybe sort of sometimes stubbornness gets the better of Dyche with with Daniel Fark in Norwich, it's a weird one. It almost feels just like, in general, a bit of a lack of ambition from them sometimes, you know. But then again, this year, they've come up and they spent in excess of near £60 million, haven't they? And it's not paid off. If anything, they look even worse than the last couple of times they've come up. You know, they spent alone nearly half that budget on two wingers and they played without two wingers at Burnley on Saturday, which, you know, you have to question if you're dropping that much, that amount of money on players especially at that end of the table should they be on players which are more beneficiary to your system so but at the same time you admire sort of the the way that these three teams haven't just sort of pushed the managers off at the first sight of any trouble array and such and you know all of them have different flaws but all of them have different positives I think two out of the three of them will still be there come the end of the season I think Deitch is the one that's a banker to be there. Um, Hassan Huttel, I can see going more than Fark, not necessarily because his results are worse, but more because I just, I can't see Norwich have this thing about them where they they sort of grasp onto sentiments too much. And I think there's certain points where there can't be any room for sentiment. And I, 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 I even though I think Hassan Huttel won't get sacked. I think it's more likely that he would go ahead of Fark, even if it's not necessarily as deserving. Well, I wonder if it comes back to what's the point of being there? So <laughs> Southampton yeah. have been mid-table, lower mid-table for the last few seasons. Uh, where are they going? Norwich, yeah. they're only going one way. So you might as well keep Fark because they got rid of their best player, Bendia, last Wendy, season. Yeah, I think- true. I think you're totally right that they've ended up worse off in the Premier League than they were in the Championship. They were playing great football with a great team mm. and they got rid of their best player. I mean, Norwich, uh, 
I'm not going to put Watford in that bracket, but they're a yo-yo club. Southampton, they should be looking up. They should be looking at models like West Ham and be thinking they can do better and, and perhaps, mm. well, not quite throwing the money like Everton are, but, but spending it more wisely. So I wonder if it will come down to that. Well, this is what I said to you earlier, wasn't it, Johnny? I said sometimes I went, you know, maybe it's because I've been quite fortunate in the way that my football club haven't, you know, I've been very lucky to see the way we've sort of accelerated, but done it modestly as well at the same time. I'd say we haven't, we, we started when the owners first came in, throwing the cash for championship level and it didn't work. So they revamped the model it's, it's fair to say it's paid off since then. But like clubs like like you alluded to, Southampton, you know, your Burnley's like, there must come a point where finishing, you know, toying with, you know, we might get sucked into the relegation battle. You know, it looks a bit eerie. March, you're 15 points clear with X amount of games left. You're safe, but at the same time, you're still 10 points off anyone ninth and above. Mm. So you're in that sort of weird sort of like, no man's land zone where you know you're out the cup in the third round of the FA Cup you've got knocked out in the fourth round of the Carabao Cup because you didn't play your full strength side and you lost to you know a Man City team that half gave it a go and chopped and changed their side but if your team had put a full strength on out they might have beaten them you know it, it sort of that endless loop of you know we're not going to go down but we're not going to do anything it must be so. I, I personally was finding it incredibly frustrating, and you know, maybe sometimes that is where the stubbornness of keeping someone mm. for so long is. But then you said, Johnny, mm. off air, that model works at Burnley, and sort of with Burnley, there's sort of like a sort of level of understanding that this is what we are. Yeah. I should just read the messages that I sent you yesterday, shouldn't I, really? I did a really articulate answer. I've forgotten most of it. But, um, yeah, and just for just for clarity, I don't know if Callum mentioned on this podcast specifically, if this is the first podcast you were listening to, but that club being Leicester, the one that is well-run economically and has the good intentions of the football club. Such a rarity, that, I think, in the, in the modern game as well, because we see a lot of owners with a lot of money, but maybe not a lot of sense. We see a lot of owners with a lot of sense, but maybe not a lot of money. So to have someone who fits both um, categories, almost in that Venn diagram, have that uh, those owners in the middle, it's wonderful to see. And it made that FA Cup win, I think, even more special when you saw the owner, the current owner of Leicester, go down to the players and go down to the squad and see you, you know, just embody embrace the celebrations that were going on but just to answer what Callum was referring to about the Burnley kind of model I suppose it you, you sort of look back uh, you don't want to look back at history too much course uh, because that could be a I can sort of give you maybe limit ambitions in, in some respects but I suppose when Burnley went to the Premier League it was such a unexpected one the first time under Sean Dyche because he spent nothing in the summer uh, he spent 450000 in that January to get the club promoted, and this was an automatic promotion. The club weren't ready, the players weren't ready, they went straight back down at the first time of asking, but then came back up, actually spending more when they came back up than they did in the Premier League in that sole season under Sean Dyke. And from that, they've just gone on and on and on, and it has been really embraced by the fans and really adored by the fans, the, the fact that not too long ago, this club were a mid-table championship team. When Sean Dyche came in, this club were a mid-table championship team. In the 80s, this club were nearly out of business because it was nearly out of the Football League. And 
there has been a steady, steady rise. There's been ups, there's been downs, many of the downs before I, I even followed the club, far worse than I even saw. But I think ingrained into that fan base is the understanding that given the model of the, the owners, given the tightness of the restrictions, there is this siege mentality almost that we can keep doing what we're doing and we are happy in what we in doing that. However, now that the new owners have come in, slowly but surely, I think that mentality will start to change. The attitude will start to change, but it won't change overnight. It will change over years. And I think, again, while Alan Pace and co do seem to have more ambitions than the previous ownership, it's not like the sugar daddy's coming in and everything's going to be okay. It's going to be a long, more drawn out process, at which point then we can start to think like Callum and like other clubs, well, let's start to target the top 10 more frequently. But at present, I don't think we're quite there yet. And certainly we'll be taking 17th at the end of this season, given the given the ferocity of the relegation battle at the moment. I want to say, actually, Oscar, as well, we, we, we've touched on that. We, we left Newcastle out, really, there in the discussion. They actually lost to Wolves 2-1 at the weekend. And Burnley, Burnley nil, Norwich nil wasn't the best game. We could skirt over that. Leeds won, Watford nil. Again, we sort of touched on that. We could skirt over that. Chelsea beat Southampton. Do we learn much from that? Not really. Skirt over that a little bit. Chelsea, you know, sort of responded to adversity quite well with two late goals in that one. Dino Livramento as well was outstanding. Yeah, he was, yeah. He was absolutely... Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, there's a reason why they've got a buyback clause in there. Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, go on. I think the point worth making with Chelsea is, mm. again, the depth of their squad. Yeah. The fact that... Alonso didn't even need to appear. The fact that mm. you've got Christensen, Aspilicueta, uh, Rudiger. I mean, it, I, you kind of see this season that, that the team is, that will win the league will be those that concede the fewest. And you've got good start. Chelsea mm. right up there, don't you? With with that back line. Uh, phenomenal. And even Lukaku hasn't really got going yet. Mm. And that's quite something. Yeah, but both fair and correct points as we say Chelsea when you had good squad depth that was in, that was illustrated wonderfully we know that Southampton have been competitive throughout the season really maybe lacking that I mean if they've had Danny Ings all season and hadn't gone to Aston Villa I think they'd be further up the table than they are they've missed some key chances and key moments but like Callum said Livramento what a signing Walker Peters as well they've thrived as wing backs I think actually against Chelsea they were playing as full backs but again he won the penalty as well Livramento clumsy from Chilwell but well played from the Southampton man and you know that it was it was a it was quite a close game that turned on a red card but again overall I think it's what we expect from Chelsea, it's what we expect from Southampton. Both teams will have harder tests to come in terms of, not harder tests to come, sorry, but more stronger tests to come in terms of where they want to be. So Southampton aren't going to survive at Stamford Bridge and of course Chelsea aren't necessarily going to win uh, the league title. Uh, well, it helps beat Southampton, but they'll have stern tests to come, I think, as well. But decent game, decent game. So uh, maybe I was a bit harsh to skirt over it so frivolously right before you both pulled me back and said, we'll discuss this. So well done. Um, on the Wolves and Newcastle game, they're slightly different to call. I, I, I sort of go at that more with the Newcastle perspective. The Wolves, we, we've seen Wolves play really well in a lot of games and I don't expect Wolves to be anywhere near the relegation zone really, convert the chances which they create a lot of if they do that and the, the you know 
shore up a little bit more defensively, then they'll be absolutely fine. But Newcastle, uh, we're talking about uh, Oscar, the the managerial situation. Some are loyal. Then there's Watford. They're, they're like anti-loyal, I suppose. And then Newcastle is like just chaos, isn't it? It's, it's chaos from top to bottom. Owner. Mm, don't like him. Manager, mm, don't like him. Players, eh, not good enough except for Saint Maximad, who's just an absolute sensation. But yeah, I mean, where, where do you start with Newcastle? Because the theory, theoretically, a club that size, the player like Saint Maximan pulling the strings and attack should be nowhere near the drop zone, and yet they are very much in the thick of it. Yeah, with Newcastle, I suppose again it comes down to expectation, and I think the neutral would admit depending on their relationship to the club, that they are big and that they are a force of nature because they are the Northeast club. Sorry, Sunderland fans, if you're listening. <laughs> and uh, looking at where they are, looking at how they perform, looking at how they run, you expect better. There's expectation, but there's also a sense of entitlement. And, mm. and that's probably one of the biggest problems. And I think a lot of Newcastle fans would admit it. Um, I've, I've certainly got a few... Geordie friends and they're the first to say we should be challenging for Europe but that's why we're not because uh, because of our history and as a result they forget about the foundation they forget um, how important that an academy is they forget the the significance of supportive ownership that, that put their heart and soul in and I think Le- uh, Leicester and Others are a good example of the power of ownership, how they can actually unite a club. And I think it's fair to say that the Sports Direct contingent certainly divide that club. And, and a club divided is is certainly not at its strongest. Yeah, I think that was really well summarised, actually. I mean, it, I sort of put Newcastle's uh, season really down to three players. I think the goalkeeper, we've seen Dubravka and Darlow in recent years have some blinding performances to bail out the lack of organisation in front of them. I actually thought Darlow had a quite a poor game against Newcastle, uh, against Wolves. Probably should have, could have saved, if not one, but both of the goals because they were carbon copies of each other in many ways. Lovely finishes from Huang Hee Chan nonetheless, but they were tight angles. I put that down as one per player and then the other two, obviously St. Maximum, but also Callum Wilson, who spends about half of the season injured. When he plays, he scores. When he, does, when he doesn't play, Newcastle don't have really a, a reliable goal scorer in that rank. So those three players are massive. And I mean, if you take St. Maximum out, I think that's, that, that team's finishing 20th. Um, yeah, to, I, to be I think that's a really, really fair assumption. And uh, please, Newcastle fans, if you can tell me the style of play or what Steve Bruce is trying to do, then, then ring me, tweet me email me where do something where, where, where should they tweet you at <laughs> oscar <laughs> underscore report that was that fans. was good if you can tell me what what steve bruce is trying to do then then i'd be over the moon because i have no idea are they allowed to use like, foul language they are they can swear at me they can swear at steve bruce they can swear as much as they want there'll definitely be some swear words aimed at bruce i don't think i've met a newcastle fan or spoken to a newcastle fan that's pro bruce i do feel sorry for bruce old harry will jump on that opportunity yeah, Harry's got a wonderful vocabulary range in Newcastle editor. I'm sure he'll, I'm sure he'll refrain from using f bombs or c bombs. Dare we go down that road? But his admiration um, for Steve Bruce is 
you know, he'll be out there. Yeah, I mean, I do look at Steve Bruce and think midlife crisis. If there was ever a face that summed up midlife crisis, it's Steve Bruce. Maybe maybe it's past midlife. I don't know. I don't know how old is Steve Bruce. How old is Steve Bruce? I don't know, but for, for me with Steve Bruce, he's, he's the epitome of a man who knows he's got his dream. He's a Geordie, isn't he? He's a Newcastle boy. Mm. He's got his dream job and he's clinging on to it. He knows that he's not good enough for the job. He knows that he's taking his beloved team down, but he's I'm taking us down, but it's my team I'm taking down. So, you know, he's just one of these, like, it's he, now he's probably a championship manager. But at the same time, Mark Ashley's happy because as long as they're in the Premier League, they're probably going to make profit. You know? But at the same time, he's got an unsellable asset because everybody looks at that and goes, you know. But there is, there's so much potential with Newcastle. If they had the right owners, they would be... I, they are one of the biggest, whether you agree or disagree, they are one of the biggest clubs in England, supportive-wise anyway, definitely. You know, the whole of the North East is, you know, obviously the Sunderland, there is Middlesbrough as well. But I would argue that when you ask most people from the North East who do you support, they'll tell you Newcastle. Mm. You know, that, we that's... Should, we should probably add Hartlepool in just to cover Jeff Stelling. Yeah, of course, Jeff Stelling. Yeah, Hartlepool, they're, they're on the off as well, to be fair. So maybe they've all gone down there. Just Jeff, no one else. Just Jeff. Just Jeff. <laughs> just um, Jeff. But, but with Newcastle, there is so much potential. And with, with the right owners and a manager, you know, half that squad's not good enough. You know, half that squad was in the championship. You know, players like Javi Mankio and that, they got relegated with Sunderland easily. You know, they've got... I feel like they don't have enough players that understand the club, which leads to the academy side of things. I know they've had the two Longstaff brothers come through, but one of them's out on loan and one of them doesn't start week in, week out. They've got Paul Dummett, that's a Freddie Woodman, that's about it. But can they like, you know, I don't think there's, a, I don't think there's enough leaders in that squad as well. I don't look at one of them, you know, Apart from Saint Maximan, but everyone knows that Saint Maximan's the the danger man, so they try and double up on him. Likewise with Callum Wilson, there's no one there that sort of grasps this team and is like, right, I'm going to lead us. That it's just it's just soulless and just it's just depressing. And my thoughts go out to you, Harry, and every other Newcastle fan out there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Callum, that was like a eulogy to, to Newcastle. That was beautiful. You got you. It breaks my heart a bit because, you know, I've, I've, my mum's my a Newcastle fan. And so, like, I, I know a lot about Newcastle and sort of, it, it's a massive club. It's, you know, a great area of the country. It's you know, their supporters. I've I've seen them getting battered five nil at, at Leicester's ground before, and just out singing it, out singing us because all they mm. care. About, I think all they literally want is just the team, a manager that has a bit of an idea, a team that turns up and puts in hundred percent effort, and then an owner that I think they just want an owner that shows even just a little bit of care about them. I think that's all they want. Care and authenticity, I'd add there because yeah. Geordies are renowned for for being honest and speaking their mind. And uh, I think the issue with Steve Bruce was summed up in the in the press conference this week where he was he was questioned by Alistair McGowan, the, the BBC reporter, about the the trial, the, the arbitration trial at the moment and, and the issues with the ownership. And um, Steve pretended he, he knew nothing and it was almost a, a little bit obtuse about it being rather difficult and then he asked Alistair what the 
QC's name was, uh, Alistair, in, in, a, in a rush, not sure he was expecting that question, got it wrong. And Steve, being duplicitous, then turned around and went, oh, no, that's not it. And you're thinking, well, you are filling the trial. So let's be honest, if he's asked your opinion, give it. Newcastle fans will be grateful for that. A little bit of honesty in the club's hierarchy goes a long way. And I think Newcastle really kind of lack that integrity throughout the club at the moment, which is a real shame. It's a very damning and wonderful, wonderfully damning indictment. That's a bit of an oxymoron. I don't think those words usually go together so well, but it, 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 I, you know, I'm, I'm finding the words, they are going there. It's been symptomatic of Newcastle, really. A lot, of, a lot of things that really shouldn't go together, going together, it's all a bit of a mishmash. It's not very good. It's not very fun for them uh, at, at all, any Geordies. Uh, however, <laughs> my team Burnley did go ahead of Newcastle yesterday as a result of that defeat. So that did amuse me somewhat because, again, there's not many positives you can take out of a nil-nil with Norwich City, ending Norwich's 16 games of losing, 16-game losing streak in the Premier League. Apart from that, the one point that took them took Burnley above Newcastle. So small, very small cloud of optimism. On to some of the other games, really. We'll save, again, saving the big one from last, just in case Super Adam does turn up and gives his... A wonderful summary of the game from, of course, the, w- which he attended. Currently still stuck in traffic, I believe. Man United Everton, what a what a bizarre game that was, really. Um, something, I mean, two managers really that that came into the season with, you, you'd argue, something to prove. Certainly, Rafa Benitez, he seems to be overachieving. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer seems to be underachieving, although it's quite early to suggest that he has underachieved yet. But he's out of the cup. He has struggled a little bit in the early stage of the Champions League. And now he has dropped points again in a, in a home game that you would expect him to be taking maximum from if Man United are indeed to challenge for the title. And I do have to ask the question, really, is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer a little bit like Frank Lampard 2.0? Very, very good at building the foundations. Very, very good at keeping a morale together until... Lots of big signings come along in the summer, and then it just doesn't look quite as cohesive anymore. Callum, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't think he has. I don't think he has it. You know, I I watched him on the touchline, and he's not on the touchline, is he? He's sort of in the. He's in the stand, looking at his. You know, well, he, he on the, well it, there was just a clip of him right at the end of the of the game, and you, you're just looking at the way like it, it looks like he doesn't even know what he's saying, but. It all stems back to, you ask every United person, you know, what was the one thing they needed to address in the summer? The number six role in the midfield. Didn't go out and get it. It's a a travesty. Fred and McTominay are not enough to win you the league. In the big game, they got bailed out by Ronaldo on Wednesday, let's face it. He, He made a call to drop him, which I actually don't think was necessarily as big a deal as everyone made out. Um, because at the end of the day, no matter how much of a machine Ronaldo is, he is 36, he needs a bit of game management. And that team on paper should have beaten what was an injury-ravaged Everton, who Rafa turned up and executed his game plan spot on. And I think if there were any doubters in that Everton camp about him, I think they're very quickly fading away. I think he had the hardest job of everybody in the league this season because not only was he dealing with a side where their fan base I I think have quite high expectations for yes. the level they actually are, but also 
he's managed the club's biggest rivals and not only that, he was extremely successful with his biggest rivals. So naturally there is that sort of divide. It's, he, it, and he's done done it by spending very limited amounts of money. It pains me watching him see it transform Damari Gray into an absolute well. He's he spent little he spent little this summer. He has. He's bought he bought in Begovic on a free, Townsend on a free, Damari Gray for one point seven five million. Sorry, can I saying that because I'm shaking my head. Look at his squad. I mean, Abdullah. Oh yeah, that's his what that's his squad, guaranteed. But I'm I'm talking about just his his spending this year. And you know, he's he's and whether those players have been performing or underperforming, he's getting them performing at the minute. And he went to Old Trafford without his two best players, arguably, Richarlison and Calvert Lewin. And they look very good value for a point on another day they'd win the game. Yeah. United just it's so lacklustre like it but it was so obvious that they get dominated in the middle of the park all mm. the time. And it, it's it's frustrating as a person who has no affiliation to United watching because it's so plain and obvious to see that they needed a number six. Mm. Whether that was Declan Rice or whatever, I personally think they should have looked at Basuma from Brighton, he would have been perfect in that middle. Not the biggest household name, but my God, does he do a job in my God, he's an upgrade on Fred and McTominay as a duo. Allows the more forward-thinking lot to just do what they want, essentially. United should be winning games like that and they've dropped points again. And that team they put out on Saturday was more than good enough to beat that Everton side. And now they come back in after the international break with a pretty difficult run of fixtures to be honest, and it, it, I think time is ticking for Oli, I actually think. Oh, yeah, all I'd say, as, as, as people will know, I'm quite a defender of Solskjaer. Actually, Callum's quite a defender of Solskjaer, really, not anti-Solskjaer in any way. I would say that when United have suffered runs of form or little spurts of form like this that have been, that has been quite negative, there's often been a response quite quickly after that that's, that's been positive. But that's the issue at the same time. It's happening too much. Yeah. They're going through bad patches and then getting back out of them. If you want to win the league title, it's like, uh, I don't normally agree with many many things Jermaine Gina says, but he put it perfectly. <laughs> Ronaldo's gone there to win league t- a league title. Nothing else. He won't accept anything else, which is why he walked off the pitch on his own on Saturday. Because yeah. that's not enough. Drawing home to Everton. At United, you, you can't settle for constant patches of... Yeah, we've dropped two points at Southampton away. You know, we've got a point at Southampton away, we've got a point at Everton at home. You've got to win those games. You have to win those games. Whether it, you know, And there's only so many times you go through a bad patch and go through a good patch. The good teams go through a good patch all season. Yeah, no, I think I think part of the reason, maybe part of the problem I'm looking at now is, is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer built a lot of his successes at United. Well, one, keeping a happy camp. I actually think all the players quite clearly do support Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. How can you not? You know, as I as I have called him on other podcasts, it's like when Bilbo Baggins runs, you know, into out of the Shire on Lord of the Rings and into the into the into the wonderful wilderness. You can't not support him. He just gives it's his face. It's like when he is the he's the I'm going on an adventure, and that is what I feel like. Oh, we're all on this adventure with you, Ollie. I'm not even a United fan, and I want him to do well. And I think you can tell that the players like him, and the players want him to do well. I think everyone, the fan, you know, no one begrudges Solskjaer's success. I think he built a lot of it 
particularly last season and before that, on Bruno Fernandes in that number 10 position. And it's kind of good where you've got one player that's very, very good and probably better than the rest. You could say, well, we'll, we'll be organised, we'll be tough to beat, but we'll get the ball to that player and he can make things happen. And that was, by and large, a key fundamental cog in the success that they'd had up until this point. Now, when Jadon Sancho comes in and when Cristiano Ronaldo comes in, then you've got other big name players who might want to be the star man as well. Maybe less so Sancho, because of course you have Haaland as well at Dortmund, but Ronaldo, of course, he is the main man, but he stands up top. He's not necessarily someone you get in the hole and he creates the things. He's the guy up top, but then he wants the ball all the time. And again, at this point, this is when you say, well, we need some kind of intricate tactical system. We need some kind of way of play, some patterns of play, like Thomas Tuchel does with Chelsea, like Jurgen Klopp does with Liverpool, like uh, Pep Guardiola does with Manchester City. And unfortunately, I think we get to that stage eventually where it, it's well, it's quite clear Ole Gunnar Solskjaer doesn't have that playbook. Um, and whether Ooh, he can... Bit harsh, Johnny. Bit no, harsh. no, but but again, at the same time, Oscar, it's, it's also... There is there is different ways of doing it because, of course, Jose Mourinho wasn't necessarily the intricate tactical attacking guy with the intricate plan like Guardiola was. He built it on getting the best out of the individuals. So he could do it in a different way. But can Ole Gunnar Solskjaer do what Jose Mourinho did way back when as effectively with these players? I don't know if he can. I don't know if he can. I th- yeah, I, I think you cite a really good example about what Ollie should be aspiring to. It happens uh, sometimes. It's fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think what we also need to appreciate is the attacking riches it has, he has yeah. at his disposal. Mm-hmm. And what the, what makes these players special is their creative license. So he's, he's trying to find that balance, isn't he? Mm-hmm. And I think the next couple of weeks, the international break, getting the players in the training ground and, and buying into this idea of, I'm going to give you a framework. But what happens if they've gone to go and play for the country? What do you do then? Does he get them on Skype? Does he get them on Skype? Half those players are going to be on internet. It's almost like with United sometimes, they're like, they rely on individual brilliance a bit too much sometimes. Mm. I don't know. If that's, that's certainly what it felt like watching him on Saturday. Like, they brought Ronaldo on because they went, right, we know you can, you did it for us on Wednesday, you can do it again, can't you? You can't do it every game, no matter how good he is. It's, <laughs> he uh, might think he can, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he probably definitely does. Which, which is probably why he's as good as he is and why I'm not yeah. a professional footballer. But as you were yeah. saying. Uh, yeah, I think the challenge for Ollie is, again, marshalling those egos and getting the best out of them. And I, I would like to see him given a bit more time because mm, I would. Cristiano will have a big influence on that squad. Mm. He's he's an idol. He's an Are idol. you on first name terms with him, Oscar? <laughs> <laughs> well, it feels weird saying Ronaldo because I still I'm old enough to still mm. remember the Ronaldo no. in the Brazilian Very good. shirt. So sorry for the older, uh, younger listeners there. But, um, <laughs> so it feels yeah. CR7s feels a little bit more familiar uh, than the Ronaldo. But uh, I yeah I think. The next couple of weeks, because some of those players aren't around mm. and because he's still got to set them up for, for the hard winter to come, I think he was right to drop Ronaldo, but also right to rely on him to come on the pitch and make things make things happen. I think what will be really difficult is getting Ronaldo to buy into this philosophy of things aren't going to go right. They're not going to go brilliantly all the time, but we win and lose as a team. And seeing yeah. him walk off by himself, 
isn't that. Yeah. I thought you were going to sort of, because that does sound exactly like something that like on the social about etc. with like an eh at the end. He likes that, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. <laughs> eh? <laughs> he does. Yes, he does. He does. He likes that just tag at the end of the of the, of the quote. It's becoming a bit memeable now, actually. I know a few people that do it to me uh, when, we're, when we're in a competitive game of something. But yeah, I mean, I mean, aside to Jose Mourinho of old, in, in terms of someone that, that, that really didn't, that built systems on individuals, but Jose Mourinho couldn't come into this dressing room because again the the mentality's changed so that you can't push the individuals like you could before. If Jose Mourinho was here now, still, well, who wouldn't have Paul Pogba? I don't think Ronaldo would be here. William probably would have come on a free transfer. That's what makes me laugh a little bit when people say, "Oh, I think we should replace Solskjaer with Conte." I love Conte. Conte is probably my favourite manager in Europe, except for Dyche. But you know, you no, know, he's equally there. I love Conte. His passion, his desire, what just the way he operates and the, what what he gets out of his players, he performs miracles. But if Conte came into that Manchester United dressing room, Pogba wouldn't be. I don't think Pogba would be playing every week. I don't think. I mean, I think there'd be a clash with Ronaldo. I think there'd be a clash with several players out there who need their egos brushed and relaxed. Conte won't do that. He'll come in and he wants warriors all over the pitch. And all of the building that United have done in recent years, I think, will just be tossed tossed aside. They might win a trophy, but if they don't, even if they do, is one, well, maybe you'd argue one trophy was enough, but then if it's another two, three, four years in the wilderness going nowhere, then then it, it's that risk-reward thing, isn't it, really? I suppose. Well, that primarily is what Solskjaer's being judged on now. I feel like he's had the period of the you know, laying the foundations because he, he was picking up broken pieces, wasn't he? And he is the first manager since the post-Fergie era to really give him a proper, I think, a real proper go at the job. I don't think Moyes was given long enough. Van Gaal was never going to stay any longer than he was regardless. I missed him. I loved his mannerisms. Mourinho was just sort of, you know, if it was Mourinho 10 years before, it would have been perfect. But... Mm. Yeah, but different players as well, isn't it? Yeah, anyway, regardless, they're, they're in the past. Solskjaer now has to win something. This is the season he has. He should have won something last season, albeit penalties is a bit of a lottery, but they were awful in the whole 120 minutes. They didn't deserve to win that final. They need to win. He has to win something this year with the players he's got at his disposal. And I also think that whilst he's sort of a great man manager, he sort of seems like he's quite pally with a lot of them. I I think he's got a bit of a soft underbelly. Like I can't imagine him going in the changing rooms and rollicking them after like a four 0 defeat. Like I can't see him turning round and going, "You weren't good enough today. You didn't do this right. You know what were you doing? You were awful today." Like mm. I think there's a bit of a soft underbelly to him, and you sort of like. You know, he's sort of like half, like he's, he's talking about the kickoff time constantly with the Everton game. Like, who cares when you kick off? Like, you're going to play them at some point that weekend. Mm. You know, like you rested your players mm. in the game because you weren't good enough, not because you kicked off at half 12 when you wanted to kick off at three or <laughs> half five. Such a pragmatist, Callum. Yeah, I think I think with uh, I remember though when Lampard was at Chelsea, and I remember it can be quite difficult. I think I think one thing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer does, is you say you, you make a fair point. I don't think he'll dig players out, and he certainly doesn't do it in the media. And I think that's quite a strength as well, and and part of the reason why. And, and you're right, 
that you can't keep having those runs of form where you dip your form dips and then you bounce back. But the fact it's never got to a stage where he's, 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 he's on the verge of being sacked testament to the fact that they always respond because they don't want him to be sacked, I think. And I remember when Frank Lampard was at Chelsea in the December, I think they just lost 3-1 to Arsenal, putting a really poor performance. Lampard comes out and says, oh, I was, you know, he basically talks like a fan and, and, and calls basically the entire team out. And then a few days later, the, there was a similarly poor performance. And then he's praising all the players. And at that point, you just think, Hmm. Well, he doesn't know, you know, he's not really being consistent with his message here. It's like he's scared to lose them, but then he's scared not to say anything. And inevitably that resulted in the sack. So one thing I'd say with Solskjaer, at least he's quite consistent. I don't think I've ever heard him call any any individual out. He's been disappointed with performances, but the fact he keeps his positivity, even in the tough times, I think is... Uh, yeah, I get that. And I think in the media, you can't just turn around and go, oh, they were awful. But I don't think he does it behind the scenes mm. either. I don't turns around and goes, you need to be held accountable because you weren't good enough today. I don't I can't imagine him going in the changing room going after that Everton game because saying you lot dropped two points today. We should have mm. eaten that Everton side. Mm. We've lost ground in the title race. What happens if Chelsea win? What happens? You know I hope he does. Yeah. I hope he does. Because if I, I, he's speaking I, I, in the media like he speaks to the players, I'm yeah. really worried. Yeah. And he came out and said we would have won if Townsend hadn't scored. Well, yeah, no poop, Sherlock. I mean, yeah. if he's going to the changing room and that's saying, the thing, well, lads, we would have won. I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't see him, and, and I, I can't see the owners pulling the trigger on him quickly enough because the one thing he does have, which buys in time, is he's a club legend. Yeah. Like, he's extremely well thought of as a player. Well, you know, I don't think he's the greatest manager. I think he's all right. Like, mm. I, I imagine most other places... He wouldn't be doing well. No. Yeah, no. Zach Lowy, uh, wonderful uh, journalist on Twitter, actually, put a really profound tweet out saying that he probably wouldn't get another job in the Premier League if he lost his job tomorrow. And that's probably true. He probably wouldn't. So. We, we might. We could <laughs> probably give him a job. But, you know, that goes without saying. I suppose I, the question I want to ask Callum is how have expectations changed with Ronaldo from last season for Oli? I think they've changed massively. I think one player of that calibre changes it enormously. I think the pressure was on to win a trophy anyway, regardless. I mean, this they spent big money on Jaden Sancho, hadn't they? And sort of Varane coming in as well. So I think Ronaldo was almost an added bonus, but he comes with that. But, but I don't think it's added even just... curse. Yeah, cursed. Because he would have even... spent he would have spent the last previous months leading to that summer transfer window identifying mm. the gaps in the market and the gaps in his squad. Suddenly, mm. Ronaldo comes on the market and the Glazers are like, oh, quick win, massive money day, let's get him in. And Ollie's mm. going, oh, I don't know what to do with him. Well, almost as well. I Play think him, Man- probably. Well, I think if Man-, <laughs> if, if Man City don't go in for Ronaldo, I don't think United would yeah. have essentially been as keen to go for him. They should have got a number six. That was the priority. But I think the pressure was on him to win a trophy anyway. But as soon as Ronaldo comes in, because it's not just the fan expectation of, oh, we've got a guy that's going to score us loads of goals. It's Ronaldo as well. Ronaldo will not settle for a trophyless season. A trophyless season for Ronaldo is unthinkable. It doesn't happen in Ronaldo world. You, <laughs> you, you win at least one thing, even if it's the, you know, it, uh. it, he's not settling for anything less. So I think that, 
like you say, whilst it's great Ronaldo back, and you know it's 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 a really nice story having Ronaldo essentially probably going to finish his career here at United, the club where it all sort of really began to flourish. For him. You don't think Beckham will tempt him out to America and take mm-hmm. Ronaldo uh, world well out? I there. think if he goes anywhere, right, reality, if go back it'll be like Chessington World of Adventures in, in Miami. <laughs> it'll be amazing. He actually goes to sports in Lisbon. Yeah, going full cycle, but I think he'll end it at United. Dyche, mm. omelet. Yeah, I think I think Ronaldo joining ramped what was already sort of a little bit of pressure to win the trophy, but now it's you have to win a trophy. End of. If you got Ronaldo in your team, you have to be winning a trophy. Yeah, it's bad that I feel sorry. For Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. No, he's got that face. Okay. Yeah. yeah, he does. He? he does have that face. Like, yeah, Bilbo. Um, but yeah, <laughs> uh, on to oh, uh, this. This is super quick, whippy kind of kind of action now, really, because I am conscious the big one has been mentioned yet. So Tottenham two Villa one, massive, massive, massive result for Nuno Espirito Santo. Uh, a few talking points for that really. Kane much livelier. Son with two assists. Which Son's kind of the key player now almost for Spurs. Ali was dropped and Dombelli and attended really well. Christian Romero, big signing from the summer uh, from Atlanta, starting in the back four along with Emerson at right back. The building blocks started to come in a little bit, even though I'm not convinced. I'm, as much as I love Nuno Espirito Santo, I'm not convinced he lasts the season. I hope he does. That was a massive, massive win for him. A reality check for Aston Villa after that Old Trafford wonderful performance. Uh, I, I suppose you could summarise as quickly as you can, Callum. Crystal Palace and Leicester. You, put, I, I mean, quite, quite frankly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, disgraceful from Leicester. Wonderful. I mean, it was about as much. I didn't talk much on the Burley Norwich game because there was very little to discuss. It was a rather boring affair. Uh, that one was actually a two-two. Uh, well, very exciting game from a neutral perspective. Leicester two 0 up, but squandered two 0 lead. Uh, Vardy and Vardy and Nacho putting the Foxes two ahead uh, before Alise and Schlupp leveled matters there. Interesting game. Very quickly. Yes. Brilliant by Vieira. Changed it at half time. Realised what Leicester were doing. And, and basically just shut them down. I, I know Callum will say, yes, it was there for Leicester to lose. But I've got to say, Palace bringing that back. Oh, to be honest, to, to be honest it was the most undeserved 2-0 lead I think I've ever seen. That Palace were all over us all game, to be honest. And wouldn't have surprised me if they went on and won it. It's just two mistakes from Joachim Anderson, which let us in, really, to be honest. And... A draw is probably quite harsh on Palace, if anything. Mm. Exciting team of Palace. One to watch this season. Wonderful transfer window. Looks like Vieira's getting that going and they could do quite well this year. It'd be interesting to see. Everything that they thought the ball was going to be. I think Vieira's actually proved me wrong a little bit. He's proved everyone wrong. Not even got Eze back yet. I'm always... always, Yeah. Yeah... That's a good point, actually. Yeah, I'm always uh, reluctant to sort of jump to conclusions, though, because in about three months, we're all saying they should be sacked then because they're not doing too well. But yeah, no, it's certainly looking very, very good for Vieira. I thought he'd struggle a bit more than he has been doing. And already you can see the progressive nature of his management coming through after the regressive nature of Roy Hodgson ball for a number of years. Uh, no disrespect there to a wonderful, wonderful Roy. Um, Brentford, actually, as well, doing 
well, doing quite frankly incredibly well. Um, I suppose capit- capitalising on a West Ham team that played it on Thursday night, of course. Uh, Wissa, the substitute with a late winner, 2-1 victory for them. That was, well, I mean, two very good teams, actually. Both have had a very good start to the season. Uh, quite remarkable that Brentford have only lost one game in seven with three wins out of that in that in that run. Uh, what a job Thomas Frank's doing. What a, what a breath of fresh air they have been. Uh, we've talked about Brentford in previous podcasts. Not really much more to add because they're still pulling up trees and 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 really giving a giving a strong impression that they can not only beat relegation but make a push for a, a solid position in the league. Um, Brighton as well drawing nil nil with Arsenal again wasn't necessarily the most exciting. Uh, to be honest, I don't think either team would be too disappointed. Brighton have been excellent this season. Arsenal are bouncing back after a really tough start and. Both teams, I think, probably would take a point from that um, because I, I had Brighton down to win. Other people would have had Arsenal down. So I think, I suppose, from that, from that, from that, from that uh, perspective, a, a point apiece probably it was probably a fair result. Uh, maybe Brighton should have won. The, not many chances created from either team, but both teams can carry on. Clean sheet for both uh, into the uh, international break. Not too disappointed, I don't think. Not too disappointed. Adam's not here. Uh, we will jump into it in a quick second. I just want to touch on, actually, a few results from Europe. Some slightly amusing ones. I mean, PSG beating Man City 2-0, but losing to Ren 2-0. It's quite amusing. Messi hitting the crossbar, but PSG really failing to muster anything much more than that. The wonderfully imperious Bayern Munich at home at the Allianz losing 2-1 to Frankfurt. Goretzka putting them ahead, but then Frankfurt equalising, and then Kostic with a late winner in the 83rd minute. And another, well, I wouldn't say shocking result, but Atletico beating Barcelona by two goals to nil. Lamar and Suarez on target. Uh, Atletico typically with not much possession, but holding a strong defensive rear guard and putting Barcelona to task. Ronald Koeman's job is under threat. Wonderful. For more wonderful results, check out oh, GeoScore. Wow. Real Madrid lost as well. And Real Madrid, who did Real Madrid play this weekend? Espanol. Espanol, yeah. See. Uh, ben- Benzema in the 71st, but they were yeah, in 2 0. So it's been an incredibly bad week for the elites. Yeah. yeah, fair point. Uh, yeah. Just, I mean, just to quickly touch on the Bayern Munich result, huge result in Bundesliga. I mean, yeah. Bayern Munich have been absolutely flying. And we're Leverkusen, Leverkusen winning 4 0. Uh, they're both joint on 16 points at the top. So actually, Bayern very Munich. good this year. Yeah, them, them and Dortmund as well, and, and Freiburg look all right. Just so behind Freiburg and Dortmund, one point behind. So Yeah, so it might actually be a competition this year in Bundesliga. That'd the be Bundesliga is such an underrated it league. I, I, will, I will die on that hill. More mm. people need to watch the Bundesliga. It's just a shame that Sky have ruined it. Yeah, it was quite good on BT, I think. It was excellent on BT because they also showed the second division as well. Oh, Bundesliga Sky? Correct. Well, there you go. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wunderbar, <laughs> wunderbar. Um, that's that's the accent of my German. Never studied it. That's yeah. We'll move on uh, to the big game, actually. Really, so no Adam here, so he's still stuck in traffic. It was from my point of view, really, an absolute masterclass from Manchester City until Liverpool went ahead, and then it, again they, they showed great character to to actually fight back, get into the get, and get and get the point in the end because Salah was on a mad one. Manchester City were performing so well, but maybe lacking, I suppose, a little bit in 
into I, I don't want to say the boring thing about the striker, really, you know, not having the striker, but again, the every, I don't know. Yeah. Every week he talks about this striker thing, about how they they, they don't need a striker. I, I I think you could just like clip the section from week one where you talked about this and just incorporate it into every week. <laughs> well let's let's add a, a bats a different angle then and say Gabriel yeah. Jesus played well today. He did. Uh, setting up the goal for, for Fraven. So, uh, I mean, I've got to say, uh, I'll be honest, I was in a pub uh, <laughs> having a lovely Sunday roast. So I was ch- catching the game, following along and uh, watching the highlights. But uh, I looked like a cracker. So I can probably answer that. <laughs> Good honesty. The roast dinner or the game? Both. Both. Both, and you know what? They complimented each other. Uh, having a Yorkshire pudding with gravy whilst oh, okay. watching sa- uh, salad dissect the city defence was oh, perfect. And, and, and it was unbelievable. That second goal was truly mesmeric. It, it was. I mean, uh, Callum's right, actually. I'm really conflicted on the striker issue because, again, when they don't have the striker, and, I, and it, 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 it sort of puts it back to Chelsea because it's so fluid. So fluid. They can play total football like you wouldn't believe it. It's like they've got another man on the pitch because people are dropping in, people are dropping out. And I know you could say a striker could do that too, but the whole point of having the striker is to have someone in the box so he scores the chances when the ball comes in. I know that. And there were times when the ball was coming in, I was thinking, oh, they should have a striker. And then there's times I'm watching the first half thinking, oh, they don't need a striker. They're just completely in control of everything. And I'm really conflicted with that. And I think I always will be. I don't think this is easy. I think if you gave... Pep Guardiola, Harry Kane, and go, oh, yes, I will have him. He's a rather good player. But the, the fact they don't have him, I think, they, I don't know. They, they, they were one game off of trouble last year. Uh, you're right, I'm clip, you can clip last week. But, um, yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my angle on that, really. Liverpool, we know they're not going to outdo City tactically, really, are they? But I'll tell you what, where does Mohamed Salah rank, actually? We haven't really discussed it. In terms of the world players, because in terms of right wingers, not politically on the football field, of course, but there's only really Lionel Messi I can think that's that, that, that's better, um, and even that's a debate because he is at that age now. Where can he? Does he have the fitness to play every week? Does he have the consistency to 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 destroy teams every week? And if you take Messi out of it, I don't think there's a better right winger in world football than Mo Salah for what he does for Liverpool, so consistently, year after year. And today, I think he carried their attack. Yeah, he was exceptional. There's there's debates going around on Twitter now, asking if he's the best player in the world. Mm. I, I think Lewandowski is, but mm. right, right now, at this very minute, mm. Lewandowski is. But that's, that's another discussion for another day, which could last the whole podcast, because there's so many players you could incorporate into that argument. But right now, right winger then. Salah was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, the second goal is Messi by Munich esque. Yeah, when he sort of took Jerome Boateng's things liberties that night, but just the way he sort of carved through, and it wasn't even sort of like you going, oh, this Man City defense should have done better. It's just complete enough to magic, isn't it? I mean, literally before that as well, everyone had been describing how unreal Phil Foden's goal was because that was exceptional as well. Yeah, yeah. And then Salah just completely decided to steal the limelight. Yeah. And that's 
do when you're a big player in a big game. He put he did such good work for Mane's goal as well. He's just he's just the epitome of Liverpool. He, he's such a joy to watch, and you know, I think even the most die-hard of rival fan can even applaud just how brilliant he is. The one thing it did take the shine off as well was Bernardo Silva's almost just as incredible assist in the first half when he sort of managed to spin away from about five players yeah. around, take on Van Dyke. And if it wasn't for some decent goalkeeping from Allison, they would have gone one up. But Salah in the Premier League right now, there isn't the best player in, in the league. Yeah. I'd say that's that's a good summary of that debate. <laughs> He's the best there. player in the Premier League. Uh, I mean... It seems Callum probably watches a lot more football than I do across across Europe, so he's probably a better judge. Mm. Um, but I also wonder how much uh, Salah is stigmatised by playing for Liverpool. Now, that might sound bizarre because of their record, but you would never think of sexy football in Liverpool immediately come to mind. You'd think Barcelona, you'd think City. Mm-hmm. If Salah was playing for another team, that would probably be a more regular conversation. And oh, Jürgen. Is it, yeah, I, I actually completely agree, but I'm in the opposite camp where I actually like Liverpool's football more in a way. I think it's so entertaining to watch it back and forth. Yeah, I, think, I agree. I, yeah, I think, yeah, I completely agree. So, but the only reason why I think Lewandowski is the best player in the world is that record is just out of this yeah. world, the amount of goals. But yeah, completely agree with you. Mm, yeah, I... I'm, I'll just to, just to touch actually before we go off on, on Bernardo Silva centrally, um, which Callum did touch on. He, I remember the the season when Kevin De Bruyne was out for City for the majority of it. I think that was seventeen eighteen, I think. And obviously he, he he is Manchester City's best player, but Bernardo Silva played in a central position for the most part, and he was absolutely fantastic. And he was Man City's player of the season. He he, he ran the midfield. Tremendous on the ball, worked so hard. He was just a joy. And we're starting to see that again now that he's going back centrally. I don't think he's very good at right wing. I don't think he's very listen, I don't think he's too bad. I think you're getting the you're only getting into 60 or 70 percent of what Bernardo Silva can be, a player that wants to get on the ball, that wants to run games, that wants to make those progressive passes forward. He's not a goal scoring winger. So I don't think he's necessarily best at right wing, where he's been shoehorned quite often. When we see him in the centre today with Kevin De, uh, or Anfield with Kevin De Bruyne, he was fantastic. And he has so much to offer. And it's scary to think that he was so close to going to Atletico Madrid because he's an absolutely outstanding footballer uh, in terms of his vision, his work ethic, his ability to caress a ball, to hold a ball and to put the ball and to, and to control a game because that's what he did virtually for a whole season in the absence of De Bruyne. I love him. I think I absolutely love watching Bernardo Silva play. I think he's exceptional. Mm. And I think I think Pep didn't want to get rid of him, but I think he wanted to go because yeah. he should be playing every single week. He's that mm. good. And it's just it's just the it's just the way Man City work. There's that much talent at the disposal that it's so easy to chuck and change and it doesn't really affect the ebb and flow of things too much. But I I, I think he's an absolute joy to watch and you know I think Pep must have you know, put his arm around him a bit and, you know, said, like, look, I do value hero because, but even if he still wants to leave, he's certainly not dubbing down at all, if anything. 
improved even more. He's, he's such a good footballer and so gifted. And I think he just doesn't get the praise sometimes he deserves because of, you know, De Bruyne, Grealish, Foden, mm. uh, Ruben Diaz, Edison. They're all bigger names, but he contributes just as much as those lot do. Yeah, he's phenomenal. Yeah, he's kind of the perfect player for Pep, isn't he? Because in a squad of, of big names, in a, in a rather big pond, actually, uh, he does the hard work, he does the dirty work, and he he is the perfect midfielder in Pep's dream of 11 midfielders on the pitch because he will contribute and he will play wing-back or centre-back or centre-midfield or up-front in the space of one sequence. So contributing and working with De Bruyne and others, you can imagine it's probably quite enjoyable for a time. But after a while, you're thinking, oh, I'd quite like the attention. Mm, I don't know I don't know what um, Man City fans' stance is on Bernard Silva, but certainly from sort of outside of there, I remember when Riyad Mahrez was first linked with Man City, there were talks of Bernardo Silva coming the other way and people were saying that's just as good if he came to it, never came to fruition because Bernardo Silva's too good for Leicester. But um, I know from outside of the Man City mm. realm, he's really well thought of, but I'm interested to see what actual Man City fans think of him. Oh, yeah, they love him. They do. I know a few. And when he first came, they loved him and, and throughout his time, they, they were a lot devastated at the prospect of him leaving. So he's very, very, very well thought of. And like I say, I think in 17, 18, I think he won Fans Player of the Year for Man City. So it again, that, I'm saying 17, 18. I think it was that. It could have been 18, 19. Might have been 18, 19 now I think about it. Because I think 17, 18 was when they won with 100 points. And it was the season after that, 1819. 18-19, every time I've said 17-18 is what I meant to say. But yeah, no, he's very, 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 very well thought of. And I'm personally happy he's still in the league because I think he's a wonderful player to watch, as that game at Anfield showed. So only only outshone by Salah, I think, on the field, really. Any maybe Foden. De Bruyne got quite good at the end. <laughs> there are a few quite a few good players, actually, never mind, but he did well as well. Um, in his in, in his own way. Um, yeah, so fantastic. What a way to sort of end. And Adam wasn't on. If Adam was on, we might have taken this podcast to the two-hour mark. In fact, it, it has gone over the hour. It's gone slightly over the hour. Uh, depending on how this is edited, it, it will depend on uh, how long it went over the hour, I guess. My thanks to Oscar, who was you know fantastic discussion there, even taking on hosting duties at times, giving my good voice a rest. <laughs> my pleasure. Cheers for having me on. Wonderful. And uh, my thanks to Callum, who soldiered on despite having quite a rough voice cough and illness well it's not illness it's just it's just it's just the cough it's been a long week i've just started a new job so there we go can, can we ask what the new job yeah you is? should you should, you should actually yeah you what you, what you want me to tell you what well um i'm i'm now working for joe media so if you want to read any of my content go and look on their website Yes. Content. We love content. Read the Joe content on the Marvel Football Podcast. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> check out Marvel uh, first and then go and check out my workout. You know what? You say check out Marvel first. However, this is technically independent to the site. So before you check out Marvel first, do like, give us a listen, comment, subscribe, give ratings, five star reviews, all that good stuff on good platforms. 
Uh, five star reviews are good, obviously. It helps build and reach. Subscribes are also good. Helps you keep up to date with anything that goes on. So uh, do those things. Then look at Vavil. Then look at Sports Geo Media. Then look at Oscar. What, what do you want people to look at? Um, look at their loved ones. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. <laughs> Do you do you write do you do you write um you should write cards that's that that should be your should. that'll be your you should you should <laughs> fantastic or even or even audio messages I feel like you've got a much better voice at something like that than I do um certainly <laughs> but yeah thanks a lot uh, for listening do all the things I just said please and uh, and join us again next week Sam Monday seven a.m. BST. I think that means British Standard Time. I think I'm not 100 percent sure. Is it? Yeah, I'm getting some nods. That's good. Uh, other times across the world will vary, of course. Take care. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. <laughs>